my name is Brian Nelson, and I uh, was asked the question that I think all of us were asked by Pastor Tim, and that was, have there been unexpected things that have occurred in your life that God has used to change direction of your life? And uh, the answer is an overwhelming yes in my case. As I grew in, into high school, um, I developed a passion for competitive sports, in particular um, downhill ski racing. Uh, that continued into racing for the University of Minnesota, and then subsequently two years on the pro circuit. So after my college and postgraduate studies, I started to develop a desire which turned into a passion for bicycle racing. And so I got involved in bicycle racing and I thought to myself, you know, uh, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it in a way that brings glory to God. So I raced for the International Christian Cycling Club team, which has 1 Corinthians 10.31 on our jersey, which says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Um, even though I was doing that, giving him the glory when I was interviewed uh, after successful races, um, I had basically shifted my identity in Christ to my identity as a competitive athlete. So one day I was out on a 50-mile uh, bicycle ride in the mountains around Lake Tahoe. All of a sudden I heard from behind a car accelerating, which at the time didn't really mean much to me. But then I looked ahead of me and there was a wide-load truck coming from the opposite direction, which was basically covering one and a half lanes. The next thing I knew, um, I heard screeching brakes and he hit me from behind, and I flew 128 feet through the air. Now, what's miraculous about that, not only was I survived, I suffered pretty serious injuries. I had a hip dislocated out the front, uh, was that while I was flying through the air, I felt like God was holding me. And God actually spoke to me. And what he said was, Brian, all your life you've lived for the temporal when are you going to start living for the eternal? It caused me to really step back and say, okay, so what is God's plan for my life here? What, what really is my purpose? A couple years later, I developed a passion for competitive skiing again. One day, while I was training up in the mountains in Lake Tahoe, uh, I was skiing down and an out-of-control skier ran into the back of me. I tried to stand up, but it was unable to, and later learned that I had five fractures in my left knee. So in a period of time, I went from thinking I was a competitive cyclist, that I was thinking that my identity was as a ski racer, and all those idols were suddenly gone. And so that was a time in which I really stepped back and started to ask myself, you know, the question, um, there's a scripture that came to mind, two scriptures came to mind. One was Isaiah 53, 6, which says, We like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his, to his own way, and upon him was laid the iniquities of us all. And that's kind of how I felt, that I had been going my own way and not really understanding what God's plan for my life was. Another scripture uh, came to my mind. How God had tried for 20 years to cause Jacob to follow God's plan that he had revealed to Jacob. And Jacob's answer was basically, thanks, but no thanks. 
And so that scripture caused me to really start thinking about, so what is this all about? What, what is it that I've been living for? What is it that I've been seeking to find fulfillment and satisfaction and joy in? And it came to the point where I finally realized that all these things that I'd been pursuing were nothing more than idols, that they were things that would not provide me with satisfaction and joy. During that time and since then, I have been very uh, sensitive to examining my heart and asking myself the question, is what I'm doing now creating an idol? Is I'm, am I substituting my love for Christ for something else? And so that's basically a story of what uh, unexpected things happened in my life and how God changed the direction of my life. Um, I just finished reading a, uh, a pretty major historical account of the latter stages of World War II in the Pacific. And uh, as you know, the fighting that occurred in World War II was long and it was brutal. And uh, when the, the end finally came, when Japan, when Japan finally agreed that they would surrender, the U.S. Naval Armada that was arrayed in the Philippines uh, just cut loose in a wild celebration. In fact, uh, the crews started firing their anti-aircraft guns into the air just to celebrate the end of the war after it had been such a bloody long siege. Uh, one observer said that they had never, even all through the war, seen a display like that, the amount of anti-aircraft fire going into the air celebrating that the war was over, that the violence had ended. Unfortunately, what goes up must come down. And all that anti-aircraft fire began raining down shrapnel on the ships all through the area. And tragically, several sailors were killed that night celebrating the end of the war simply from the shrapnel that was falling on them. Have you ever been in a situation where you found yourself ducking for cover from an overwhelming problem that was actually a problem of your own making? Today we're going to take a look at the story of some people who found themselves trapped in a, a bad situation, a deadly situation, but one which really was one of their own making. Uh, something that they should have expected, knowing their history, and yet the unexpected was their deliverance from that situation. And so we're going to take a look at a story today from the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, the book of Judges is a hard one to read because it seems to be the story of one catastrophe after another raining down on God's people. And the specific story we're going to look at is the story of a man named Gideon. So what was the catastrophe for Gideon and the people around Gideon's time? Well, we get that from Judges chapter 6, verse 1. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So what was it that Israel had done that got them into trouble? Well, we get that from Judges 6, 9, and 10. God speaking, he says, I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you, drove them out before you, gave you their land, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Specifically, what Israel had done is they had gotten caught up in the idol worship that occurred among all of the neighboring cultures around them. 
And so what was the consequence of buying into the beliefs and the practices of their neighbors? Here's what was going on. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land. So here we have the people that are living these lives where they are now trapped and hiding, trying to avoid these raiders that kept swooping down on them. I think we can understand that a bit just looking what's going on in our world today. You watch what's happening in Ukraine, and suddenly here is a, a massive power that has decided they want to take their land. And, and this is the condition that the people of Israel are in. The, the Midianites outnumbered them, were powerful in them, and they find themselves hiding every time they think they're going to have success. Here come the Midianites to take the success from them. Now here's the irony I find in this. Israel had probably adopted some of the customs of their neighbors, some of this idol worship, because they wanted to fit in. They wanted to go with the flow. They wanted to tap into whatever advantages they thought maybe their neighbors had. What were the keys to their success? And maybe we could do the same and, and we could have their success too. And much of the idol worship that surrounded them was focused on trying to manipulate various deities, false deities, but, but nevertheless trying to manipulate them for personal prosperity. It, it was a, a means of trying to gain success. But the strategies that they'd adopted that were supposed to bring them success, were supposed to bring them prosperity, instead had led to anxiety and oppression and loss. Every time things started to go good, the crops were coming in, here came the Midianites, and they stripped it all away. And the only way that Israel could hang on to any of their success was to start hiding out in caves and building forts and trying to avoid detection. Quite a way to live. Well, one thing they finally did right. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. They finally went looking for help, in the right place. Their misdirected plans for peace and prosperity had gone up in smoke, and they finally cried out to God for help. And that's where we meet this guy named Gideon. And, and here's how we're introduced to Gideon, Judges 6.11. Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So he's doing what everybody does. He's found some low place he can hide out to try and, and enjoy his prosperity. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Well, right from the get-go, Gideon's lifestyle and the Lord's pronouncement seem a little bit out of sync. You mighty man of valor, hiding here in a hole in the ground. But the, the compliment doesn't go to Gideon's head. In fact, his response to this is actually more accusation than it is acknowledgement. Here's how Gideon responds. Gideon said, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So Gideon's complaint is, okay, God, why have you let this happen to us? Where, where is the God that delivered our ancestors? 
It's interesting that Gideon actually had the audacity to challenge God as though it was God who had failed them. Based on how the Lord responds to Gideon, I have to conclude that Gideon was actually really worked up when he said this. You've got to put the emotion into this. I mean, this is, he's red in the face. His, the veins are bulging on his neck. He is shaking his fist a little bit. Uh, he's been forced to hide. His crops have been stolen, and he is mad. He is fighting mad. Where is the God that said he was going to deliver us? Why has he done this to us? And look at how the Lord responds to Gideon. The Lord turned to him and said, well, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Well, come on, Gideon. Let's take this righteous indignation of yours, this power that you have, and why don't you go and save your people? I'll send you right now. Go ahead, go save them. And, and that kind of cools Gideon's jets a little bit. Gideon said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Yeah, I'm mad. I wish I wasn't in this position. But Lord, you know full well that I can't get us out of this. I don't have the strength. It may be one thing to clench your fist while you're hiding in a wine press, but it's another thing to run out and go to battle with an adversary that outnumbers you 100 to 1. Not only does Gideon know the overwhelming strength of the enemy, he also knows his own weakness. He says, my family is the weakest, and I'm the weakest of my family. I want to be delivered, but God, the way out is too much for me. So could you just do it for me, and I'll stay here in the wine press? That's what Gideon is hoping for. So how does God respond to this angry, frightened, overwhelmed man? I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation, Judges 6, 16. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and I will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So what's the Lord's response? He says, I will be with you. Gideon, I'm not just sending you, I'm going. And God has interesting math. He says, in my math, you plus me equals two, Midian equals one. That means that you overwhelm them two to one, Gideon. We win. Well, Gideon goes on. If you read the story, he asks for a sign that this messenger really is the representative of the Lord, and God provides the proof. And, and once Gideon is convinced of that, then Gideon is ready to sign up for the team. Okay, what do you want me to do? And, and the first thing that God tells Gideon to do is the first big unexpected in the story of Gideon. See, Gideon is ready to go out and fight the Midianites because Gideon knows where the problem in his life is. The problem is out there. The problem is those people. God, that's the problem I'm up against is those people out there. And yes, I'm ready to go in your strength and deal with that problem out there. So God, what are we going to do to fix them and get me out of this jam? But step number one in God's book had nothing to do with those people out there. Rather, God says, let's take care of some pressing business at your house. Specifically, God tells Gideon that he should go home and commit some holy vandalism. Here's what he says. 
That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God. Job number one, Gideon, if you want out of this jam, is to tear down the false altars that are at your house. Job two is erect a new altar and consecrate your household once again to God and God alone. Apparently, everybody at Dad's place had bought into the same idol worship as the rest. In fact, maybe Gideon had too. We, we don't have any assurance in this story that Gideon wasn't going right along with everyone else. And Dad has this altar erected to the pagan god Baal. And he also has an Asherah pole. Now, if you wonder what that is, Asherah was a Canaanite fertility goddess. And she was possibly seen as being a love interest of Baal. And so they put the, her symbol, her Asherah pole, right next to Baal's altar. Uh, Asherah poles were erected to depict and honor this goddess of fertility. Uh, sometimes Asherah poles were living trees that were planted. Other times they were a carved thing, kind of like a totem pole. Uh, Asherah poles are actually referenced quite a few times in the Old Testament. There are at least 13 instances where you find reference to Israel having Asherah poles erected. This is God's people putting up Asherah poles. In fact, in 2 Kings 21, we find that Manasseh, who was at that time the king of Judah, went so far as to carve an Asherah and set it actually in the temple at Jerusalem. Uh, just one of many pagan syncretisms that he embraced. Now, this structure at Gideon's house was significant. It was big. I mean, just look at how God tells Gideon to go about tearing this thing down. He says, take two ox with you to get the job done. And if you read on, you'll find that not only did Gideon take two ox, he also took 10 men with him. So 10 men and two ox to tear down this Asherah pole and this altar to Baal at his father's house. Uh, these idols, too, were revered landmarks in the community. In fact, Gideon is so worried about the reaction of his neighbors if they catch him tearing this all down that he won't even go until late at night so that it's all done before people get up in the morning. And sure enough, in the morning, when, that, when morning light comes and people discover that Gideon has vandalized the monument to Asher and the altar to Baal, they are livid. Here's Judges 6.30. The men of the town said to Joash, that's Gideon's dad, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. This is cancel culture, Old Testament style. <laughs> bring him out and we're going to kill him. It's interesting, the response of Gideon's dad, Joash. While obviously he had bought into the pagan worship of his community, uh, in fact, this stuff was all on his property, right? He appears to have had an even greater allegiance and respect for his son Gideon. In fact, maybe Gideon's action had actually spurred dad's conscience because when the people come demanding that he hand Gideon, oh, excuse me, hand Gideon over, here's how dad responds. Joash shouted to the mob, why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. 
From then on, Gideon was called Jerobel, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. I think it's a good reminder that the first thing God wants to deal with in any crisis out there may not be the crisis out there. Often it's a crisis that's happening in here. It may be the false gods and the foolish priorities that I've erected in my own heart that have led to the crisis. When the conversation had started between Gideon and the Lord, all Gideon could think about were those nasty Midians out there. And yet, all the while, he's living in a house with a massive altar erected to a false god, to Baal, a deity who in some places sometimes demanded human sacrifice. Right next to it is this telephone pole-sized idol erected to a goddess of fertility. You think about it. Gideon knew all about God delivering his ancestors from Egypt. Uh, he'd grown up hearing the words of Moses read aloud. He must have known the Ten Commandments. Uh, here's how the Ten Commandments begin. Exodus 20. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember, Gideon quoted this to God. Where is the God who delivered us from Egypt? He's, he's starting off pretty good, but then look at the next part. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. Somehow, old Gideon was willing to throw up the first line, you're the God who brought us out of Egypt, and challenge God on that, but somehow he become completely blind to the contradiction between God's call to holy devotion and this giant display of idolatry standing right in his own front yard. And I wonder sometimes if we aren't like him. You probably aren't. Sometimes I think I am. We, uh, we chafe, we grumble, we get angry about some of the circumstances that come into our lives. We can even get bitter at God because he doesn't fix it. And yet, there are things right in the center of my own life sometimes that are a glaring contradiction to the very things that I say I believe. We want to be close to God, but we want to hang on to some of the other stuff as well. Just to cover our bases, hedge our bets, just in case God doesn't come through, I'm going to hang on to some of this stuff for me as well. We've got some idols hanging out in the front yard, but they've been there so long that we don't even see them anymore. They've just become part of the way we do life. In our culture, we don't worship Asherah poles, but I still think we have plenty of idols. Uh, you heard Brian Nelson's testimony at the outset about idols. And uh, I thought it'd be nice just to invite him up this morning and he and I can talk a little bit more about that. So Brian, why don't you come up here and let me get a microphone. And uh, Brian, you are, why don't you come on over here to the center. Uh, you're a, a new person for a lot of us, newer to SQUIM. Uh, maybe just introduce yourself briefly and tell us who you are. Well, uh, I moved here, I, well, let me start by saying this. Um, I've been married to my bride for 48 and a half years. She sits right over there. Very good. Let's, 
puts up with me. Um, so uh, my kids and uh, my grandkids moved here some time ago, and um, I often refer to it as abandonment because we were still back in Nevada. And so we, we decided to move here. Um, I contacted a number of churches and spoke with you mm -hmm. and Pastor Britt. And after doing that, I felt like you were for real. And that's important to me. And so I was felt led to, to start coming here. We've been coming here for about two months now. All right. And um, uh, I've been involved in a couple different ministries, um, um, primarily in the area of uh, major church leadership conflict, uh, marriage and family conflict. Uh, I was certified as a Christian conciliator through Peacemaker Ministries. Right. I've been doing that for 21 years. And then I've been more recently involved with uh, Christian Cycling which is an outreach to the lost of people who would probably never enter a church. That's great. Well, it's nice to have you here. Welcome to Squim. Thank you. You were talking about your past and some of your sporting involvement, accomplishments and all, and you referred to those things as idols. What, what do you mean calling something like cycle racing or skiing an idol? Okay. Well, first of all, I think when we think about idols, the first thing that probably comes to our mind is statutes made out of wood or metal or stone. And I will tell you that idols is way more comprehensive than that. And an idol is really anything that we put our heart on, that we depend on for our fulfillment, our security, uh, our joy. Uh, and when we do that, we um, forget that that's what God is supposed to supply us and does. And so that was kind of my, my challenge is, is um, through those events is to come to a realization that I was seeking basically cisterns that could hold no water. Yeah. You talked, uh, we were emailing back and forth some, and uh, you talked about some of the relational idols that come up. And I, but I put these up on a slide here. Uh, maybe just talk a bit about what are some of these relational idols that you think we can get caught up in? Okay. Yeah. And can I just make one quick comment first? Yeah. Um, not to be misunderstood, these sports activities became idols. They did not start out as such. I don't want you all rushing home and selling your golf equipment, your classic cars, uh, your bicycles, and uh, your skis. So they became an idol. They didn't start that way. Yeah. That's good. So, so um, with respect to relational idols, um, idols are, go way beyond the normal things that we think about, which are perhaps our job, uh, what we own, our material things. Um, uh, those sorts of things are what we normally think about maybe with idols, but idols can be relational idols as well. Mm -hmm. And so we have up here a list of what those might be. And you can take your, your pick, whichever one is your favorite. Uh, for me, probably success was, was my number one idol. And the thing about idols, relational idols, is that they start out as desires. And it's okay to have a desire to be successful, to be respected, uh, any of these. But you can never let them rule your heart. Only Christ Jesus should rule our heart. And so what happens is as they become demands, we then create expectations for people to meet our demands. And when they don't, we judge them and we ultimately punish them. I often say that the red flag of an idol of the heart is when you have a desire to punish somebody for not meeting your agenda. 
That's good. In fact, you sent me a list of questions because one of the things is how do we spot these things? Right. And, and you sent me some uh, self-diagnostic questions here that, uh, why don't we just run down that list real quick, Brian? Okay. So um, as you can see from the list, um, when you're in the midst of a relational conflict where idols may be ruling your heart, it's important as your, as your temperature, your emotional temperature rises, to step back and ask these questions. Am I Christ-focused or self-focused at this moment? At this moment, what am I treasuring? What am I serving? Who am I putting my trust in? What am I worshiping? Have my de desires mutated into demands? What is hindering me from living in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel? So these are the things that we need to, to spot. Um, John Calvin said something pretty profound when he said, idols, our hearts are idol factories. Yeah, good. Brian, thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for sharing. Okay. So here's a little homework for you this afternoon. Why don't you uh, try going home and make a list of what you think maybe are five to ten of the Asherah poles that our society worships. Not talking about you. Okay, we'll talk about them. But then, why don't you ask God to help you take a look at your own front yard? Is there something sitting out there that he'd say, you've got one too? And, and what is it? And maybe these questions will help you to start thinking about, are there areas in my life where I've allowed my heart to become devoted to something other than God? And then, ask God what will it take to tear him down. Some of these things will take two ox and ten men. Some of this stuff is not easy to deal with. Uh, we, we've got some of our men who have just started going through the Conquer series, which is all about the battle for sexual purity. And, and those guys have recognized that maintaining sexual purity, especially in a pornography-saturated culture, is something that is hard to do by yourself. And I don't know if they've got any ox in there, but they've got some other men, and they said, hey, can you come alongside and help me tear this thing down? Or our Celebrate Recovery group is comprised of people who have come together because they recognize that there are hurts, there are habits, there are hang-ups that have become the asherahs in their life. And that it's more than they can just do by themselves to tear that thing down. And so is there something in your life that God would say, this needs to go and you need to get with some people who can help you tear that thing down? But it's not just about eliminating idols. Gideon was told to tear things down, but then he was told to build an altar to re-consecrate that ground to the glory of Christ. And so with the home field cleared, it was then time for step number two, and that was to actually deal with the Midianite problem, which also meant doing something unexpected. Gideon comes to this next phase with just as much fear as he did the first, and again, he asks God for some proof before he goes out and starts battling Midianites that God really is with him. And if you know Gideon's story, you know that he comes up with this idea where he says, I'm going to put out this fleece, I'm going to leave it overnight outdoors, and normally the fleece and the ground would all be wet. And he says, God, if this is you, the sign I'm asking for is that uh, in the morning, the fleece would be wet and the ground would be dry. And sure enough, Gideon gets in the morning and, and that's the way it is. And being a man of great faith, he said, okay, well, let's try that again. He says, how about tonight I put the fleece out, and this time if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, then I'll know for sure that it's you, God. And uh, I always appreciate the fact that God actually humors Gideon. God loves Gideon enough. He knows it's a big enough ask 
that he says, okay, Gideon, I will prove to you that I am with you. And if you want to read about that, read Judges 6, verses 36 through 39 about Gideon and his fleeces. It kind of reminds me of the guy that was taking a, uh, a true-false quiz that he had totally forgotten to study for. He walked into the class, the pop quiz shows up, he panics. The only thing he knows to do is he pulls a coin out of his pocket and he starts flipping the coin. Heads is true, tails is false. And the uh, professor sees this guy in the room toward the back there who's flipping this coin and writing down, flipping the coin, writing down. And right toward the end of the hour, the guy starts furiously flipping the coin. You flip it, look, flip it, look, flip it, look, and then time is up and he hands in his quiz. And the professor stops him. He says, I just got a question for you. He says, I, I kind of guessed you didn't study for this, right? The guy said, yeah, yeah I, I really forgot about it. He said, so you're flipping the coin, probably what? Heads was true, tails was false, something like that. The guy says, yeah, that was it. He says, well, at the end, I noticed you were just flipping really fast, but you weren't writing. What, what was that all about? The guy says, oh, I went back to check my answers. So, Gideon went back to check God's answers. Make sure the signs really were the signs. God, are you really with me in this? And, and knowing that he was, then Gideon gets ready, and, and, and God says, call together all of the fighting males, right? We're going to war. It's time to call an army. If you watch what's happening in Ukraine right now, they're basically saying anybody that can pick up a gun will give you a gun. We're all going to fight. That's the only way we're going to win. And 32,000 men show up with spears and swords ready to go to battle. That had to be pretty encouraging to Gideon to get 32,000 volunteers to show up. And then the unexpected happens. Judges 7, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. All right, so any of you that are chicken, you can go home now. And 22,000 people left. Okay, that doesn't feel so good. Just like that, 70% of the troops go home. They showed up for the pep rally. They weren't ready for the war. Now, when does a military strategist ever say, my army is too big? But God wasn't done thinning the ranks yet. Here's Judges 7, 4 and 5. The Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring. Divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. So forget boot camp. Uh, forget Navy SEAL Hell Week. Uh, we're going to use the water drinking test. <laughs> Kneelers go home, lappers stay and fight. And just like that, he eliminated 97% of the remaining 10,000. He ends up with 300 elite water lapping troops. 1% of the original draft is what Gideon is left with. A lot has been made about the fact that the 300 who stayed and lapped water, that it's because they had stayed in this battle-ready posture. And the Bible doesn't actually say that there was any merit to the fact that they were drinking water this way. It may just be that God wanted to limit the attack force to guys who drank water funny. But, but that's what Gideon ended up with. And so by the time God is finished, he has chosen the weakest man, from the weakest family 
to lead an army that is composed of less than 1% of the available fighting force, to take on an army that is described in Judges 7:12 as numbering like the sands of the sea, and the chief qualification for Gideon's SEAL Team 6 is how they drink water. Bottom line, God wanted to be sure the people knew that he was the one who was going to deliver them and not their own strength. Well, understandably, Gideon feels a little a tactical concern about the upcoming battle, and so to help ease his mind, God sends him on a special ops mission, tells him to sneak down and listen in to what's going on at the, in the camp of the Midianites. And so Gideon gets down there, and he overhears a conversation. He hears this man telling about a dream that he had. He says, I, I dreamed a dream. Behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Well, Gideon's pretty encouraged. Here's this conversation, realizes these people are nervous. Now, they don't know that Gideon just sent home 97% of the army. All right? They just know there's a big army and that Gideon's getting ready for a fight. And now with his dream, and these people put a lot of stock in dreams, they're going, we're in trouble. And the thing is, I think there were dreams like that that were going on all across the camp of the Midianites. And people were nervous. God was conducting what we might today call psyops, psychological operations. And these guys are all getting a little scared, a little spooky about what is about to happen. When they finally go to bed, everybody is feeling kind of spooked. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed and he worshiped before the Lord. Because now Gideon sees that God truly is going before them. That he's doing things they never could have done for themselves. So Gideon goes back. He tells the little army to get up, get going. He says the battle is as good as won. The plan of attack was just as unexpected as the troop selection. He breaks his group up into groups of 100 each. And then he arms them with torches and empty pitchers. Which is not exactly the picture of lethal force. And he puts one group on each of three sides. I think that's, he left one side open so they all had some place to run to when they ran away, right? And, uh, and he tells them to watch him. And when he blows his trumpet, they are all to blow their trumpets and break the pots to reveal their torches. And uh, they're to cry out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. That's it. That's the full plan of battle. That's plans A, B, and C. We're going to break pitchers, blow trumpets, and yell. All 300 of us. And so they head off to the fight. They wait till about 10 p.m. at night. So it's, it's dark. Everybody's tucked in bed. And then on Gideon's cue, out come the trumpets, the torches. And uh, suddenly these half-asleep people come to. They see torches winking on all around them. They hear this battle cry. And figuring they must have been ambushed and the enemy is already in the camp, people come out swinging wildly. So they end up starting to kill each other, fight with each other. And then they begin to stampede and run. And once they started running, there was no stopping them. And God gave his people an amazing, totally unexpected victory. And, and with that, everyone recognized that God was their hero. A great spiritual revival broke out in Israel. They, they all agreed they'd worship him above all. Uh, actually, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> they all decided that Gideon is the hero. 
and the people immediately turned to hero worship. They offered to make Gideon and his lineage their new royalty. They would put them as the ones in charge. They weren't going to worship uh, Asherah, a false god. They're now going to turn and worship a great leader, which would be another false god. Unfortunately, Gideon responds wisely. Here's what Gideon says. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon understood where the victory had come from. But sadly, that's not the end of the story. The story ends with one more unexpected. While Gideon refused the accolades, he did come up with an idea which, at the start, seemed like a good idea. It's like Brian said, there's a lot of things that aren't bad in themselves. Skiing, cycling, that's not a bad thing. It's what we do with it. And, and sure enough, Gideon gets this idea that everyone should contribute some gold, and he's going to create this ceremonial breastplate, what they called an ephod, to commemorate and celebrate the great victory that God had given them, which might have been fine if they just left it as a reminder. But unfortunately, over time, that thing became something else. It came to be seen as some sort of a, a good luck charm or a talisman, and, and they began to worship it. And, and here's how the story ends. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon, all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Well, some takeaways from the story of Gideon. The first one I would say is that the place to start when we face opposition, when we face trouble, is in our own house. And we start by asking some of those questions, are there idols that I've created, that I've given my energy, my attention to, that are leading to me being in trouble? And who do we need to come alongside and help us tear them down? So we begin not by just looking out there. We begin by looking in here. A second takeaway I get from Gideon is when it comes to overcoming overwhelming problems in God's economy, God plus you is a majority. And so maybe there is that thing that has just owned you, that you feel like there could never be release from it, there could never be victory over it. God's message would be, if I'm in it, if you're with me, this battle can be won. But that's the third thing. God doesn't need us for the victory, but he wants us in the fight. Could God have just made the Midians run away without Gideon doing anything? Well, of course he could. I mean, he made a whole point of weakening Gideon's army down to the point that they were a joke for the battle. And yet, he wanted that little joke of an army to go out there with their little pitchers and little trumpets and take part in the battle. He was going to win it, but he wanted them to fight. The, the oppressive things we face may indeed be far greater than we can conquer, but that doesn't mean God wants us to stay hiding in the wine press. God defeated the Midianites, but it was only as Gideon was willing to take 
The weak little steps of faith God told him to, like blowing his trumpet and holding his torch, you, you obey God, even if it seems weak, and you let him take care of the bigger fight. The fourth thing I would say is recognize our weakness for idols. Brian talked about that Calvin quote, that, that our, our hearts are like these idol factories. And, and wow, are we ever susceptible to it? We so easily set our hearts on the wrong things. I mean, think about Gideon's epilogue. Gideon wins this fight. Everybody knows that he'd send everybody home. They all know that Gideon had no ability to win this fight without God's intervention. But the first thing they do is they kind of forget God and let's make Gideon the hero. And then even Gideon gets caught up in uh, falling prey to this golden ephod and making something out of it that it never should have been. I think this happens sometimes among Christians with Christian leaders. God uses a particular teacher or a preacher that speaks life-giving words to us at some critical juncture in life, and suddenly we are completely devoted to that leader. We have to listen to all their podcasts. We have to buy all their books. They can do no wrong. And I'll tell you what, that is a recipe for disaster. When we give ourselves to a person rather than to God. It can happen with spiritual experience. God does something miraculous in our lives. And and suddenly we decide that everybody needs to have the same experience that we had. It's the experience that matters. Or everybody has to read the book, or they have to go to the seminar, or they have to buy into the same three-step system that worked for us. We begin to worship the deliverance rather than worshiping the deliverer. Finally, number five, I remind you that God is for you. God is for his people. Even when we have fallen for things that are false, God came to redeem and rescue Israel when Israel was still deep in their sin. God is for us even when the catastrophe is of our own making. God still comes for us in grace. No matter how overwhelming the trials, the opposition, the strongholds may appear, the story of Gideon is a reminder that God is able to deliver. And often, as Gideon discovered, he does it in the most unexpected ways.